Welcome to Most Popular, the podcast that can tell you why the Harry and Meghan Netflix special was a huge deal. I'm Dr. Adrienne Trierbenik. I'm your host. In case you're hearing this for the first time, I am a real-life college professor of sociology, not those fake ones you see on TV, and I created this podcast to combine my two loves, pop culture, and the impact it has on our lives. There are a lot of reasons why I am excited to bring this discussion to you today, mostly because I am going to talk with Kate Powers, the COO and Chief Development Officer of Ellie's Place in East Lansing, Michigan. So Ellie's Place offers resources for children who are dealing with grief, and I cannot say enough great things about the work they do, but also, selfishly, I am psyched to bring you this episode because Kate is my cousin. Today is a family affair (laughs) on Most Popular. Um, I was inspired to talk with Kate after watching the literal ton of superhero movies I have seen over the last decade. And I've noticed a push lately for superhero movies to move beyond the sort of break stuff genre and into a setting that shows how they have become part of their community. See your friendly neighborhood Spider-Man, for those of you who are Marvel fans. (laughs) Uh, This got me thinking about people like Kate, who are the literal superheroes in their community. And ta-da, here we are. I hope you learn a lot from listening. Here's my conversation with Kate Powers. Hi, Kate. Welcome to Most Popular. Hi. Thanks for having me today. Um, So I wanted to start with some general stuff just for anybody who has very little knowledge on what not-for-profits are. So can you talk about a little bit what that means and if there's any criteria or something you have to meet to be a nonprofit? Absolutely. Not-for-profits are part of the business and community sector that fill a need um, that cannot be met either by the government or a for-profit organization. And really the biggest piece of nonprofits is one that they're charitable. So people and individuals and other grantors or funders across communities and across the country will provide dollars for these organizations to do the work that they do. Most of them are mission-based. So Mm -hmm. there is a common good that is looking to be met by the work that these organizations do. And the other part about it that I think is pretty great is that um, given the fact that they are charitable and tax exempt through the IRS, people can direct their own funds to a nonprofit organization and be part of supporting the work and the mission that those organizations are doing. Yeah, it's really all about having that little boost for the community and feeling like you're a part of what good you're doing. Absolutely. Definitely provides people the opportunity, even if it's in a small way, to be a part of something bigger than them in their own community. And and I worked for a nonprofit for a few years um, before I went to grad school. And the thing I think that always sat with me was how important grants were and how uh, much time people spent looking for that funding. Um the cool thing about it was I got to see a lot of really awesome grants come through and you get to see a lot of the amazing things that are happening in the community. Uh, how do you mm-hmm. think, how do you think nonprofits affect communities? What role do you think they play? I think nonprofits are the organizations that fill the gaps in communities. So yeah. 
we obviously have governmental organizations, we have our for-profit companies, we have institutions of education, be they higher education or public or private education, you know, in the K through 12 system, et cetera. Nonprofits really provide that opportunity to fill the gaps that those other community organizations cannot. So for example, there is an opportunity in my own community this summer for kids who are not, who don't have access to food because of their financial situation or the fact that their parents aren't home during the day, whatever it happens to be. They don't have access to food. There is a nonprofit in my community that is filling that gap and providing lunches at one of the local schools for mm-hmm. any child in the community that wants to have lunch. So it's one of those opportunities where there is a need and the need is met. And that's really where I think nonprofits are imperative to our society and to our communities because not every for-profit company and not every governmental organization can do everything. I think yeah. we certainly see that on a daily basis. So yeah. being able to have those nonprofits who can do the things that other organizations can't do makes our communities so much more robust. I like the phrase fill the gap. I think that that sums it up nicely. Um, so talk a little bit about Ellie's Place. What What is it? What role do you play? What does it do for the community? Absolutely. Ellie's Place is a healing center for grieving children. We serve children between the ages of 3 and 18 at four sites across the state of Michigan, which is where I am based. Mm-hmm. We also work with schools and other youth programming um, across the state to provide grief support groups for kids who have experienced the death of someone close to them. And we also provide community support and intervention. When a tragedy or trauma occurs, our team is there to provide resources and to provide opportunity for families and adults in the community to support kids in potential grief. We have been doing this work for almost 30 years. Wow. Um, which is pretty remarkable when you think about yeah. the attitude towards children's grief 30 years ago. <laughs> um, and we have really grown a lot in, in that attitude. Um, I think the other piece that's really exciting for us is that we are looking at opportunities to partner with other grief centers across the state and other youth organizations from the Upper Peninsula all the way down to the Indiana Ohio border to ensure that no child in Michigan grieves alone, because we also know that children who experience a grief trauma and allow that to go unresolved have long lasting and and life lasting uh, challenges that start from things as simple as behavioral outbursts or school issues, issues with grades and truancy and can go all the way to substance abuse, alcohol abuse, suicidal ideation. So we want to be able to help children and their families to curb some of those behaviors and learn how to cope after the experience of someone close to them dying and to be able to continue to to be part to be a, a effective and important part of our community. 
And so I think that's the other thing that we really do here is ensure that people within our communities are getting the help that they need. And yeah. I think it's really interesting with grief because death is not something that our society talks very openly about. Yeah. Uh, so kids feel very isolated when someone dies. Mm-hmm. Um, I want to back up and ask you just a couple of things. So if something happens in the community where death is affecting children, do you physically go to that site? Is that what you mean? We have in the past. Yeah. And we certainly can. Um, we have found, for example, um, in, some of, in some of our communities across the state where there have been very high-profile tragedies Mm -hmm. within a school, mm -hmm. the death of a student or the death of a teacher or a very high profile situation. It doesn't have to be high profile, but yeah. where a number of children are affected in one location, we will oftentimes deploy our bereavement staff to support those kids. But then other times it's just, you know, unfortunately there's a lot of things that occur in our world today. We are in a far less than 24 hour news cycle and yeah. get information instantaneously. Right. Yeah. So oftentimes our kids who are continuously on social media and online know about things that are occurring, tragic things that are occurring in the news and in the world before the adults do. And that presents its own sort of trauma. So we also provide resources to families, how to talk to your children about a national tragedy or mm -hmm. how to talk to your children about what they're seeing um, that's happening in real life, whether it's, you know, a thousand miles away or right in their own backyard. Mm -hmm. We want people to have an understanding of the best way to communicate with children when something traumatic happens. Yeah, I've had a lot of my friends whose kids are about the age of your son who are, are um, starting to have, I don't know what they're called in Michigan, but here they're called bad man drills, which is basically an active shooter scenario mm -hmm. where the kids learn how to handle it. Um, so there is a, I'll email it to you later and I'll post it on the website. There's a piece of research that's coming out that talks about the effect that those things have on children and their development. And that mm -hmm. um, the simulation for some kids is enough to uh, to not trigger trauma, but to to raise awareness in a way that maybe they weren't ready to understand. Um, they kind mm -hmm. of equate it, yeah. They kind of equate it to like when I was a kid, we had fire drills like every other week. I don't know why they were so worried about fire, but they were, and we had them all the time. And I remember coming home and telling my mom. Um, that we had a fire drill and then I wouldn't be able to sleep that night. And right. she, my mother being my mother called, I think the school and said, what's the deal? Why are we having so many fire drills? Um, right. But yeah, kids have this insane um, uh, way of grasping at stuff and perceiving things that I don't think adults fully grasp or fully understand. Mm -hmm. Well, in that concept of magical thinking where if you, if you're not very straightforward with children, and you may have noticed throughout our conversation, and I'll continue to do this, we don't use euphemisms when we're talking about someone dying. So mm. we don't say that someone, that you lost your grandpa, because when you lose something, you can find it. Yeah. Um, we don't ever tell children that, you know, someone went to sleep 
Um, because yeah. you can imagine that that's really going to affect a child's sleep pattern. Yeah. <laughs> someone went to sleep and now they're gone. So I obviously can't go to sleep either. And so, you know, I think the thing that we have found in our, in our time doing this, and we have an amazing national network of other grief centers and other organizations that are doing research on children's grief. But the thing that we have found is that concrete language concrete information shared with the children and we serve kids as young as three so wow you know we're we're utilizing different language obviously with our three-year-olds than we are with our 18-year-olds but still being very straightforward with the children that we serve and using the word death and explaining to people and children specifically that when someone dies it means their body couldn't work anymore, whether that was because they were sick or they had a very bad accident or whatever it happens to be. But we are very concrete with children and we really encourage the families that utilize our services to be as upfront as possible with the kids about how the person died. Um, Because then there is that concept of magical thinking, you know, kind of, if, if children aren't given concrete details and concrete information, they'll make it up. Mm. And so, you know, I think it's likely the same thing with a fire drill or an active shooter drill or whatever type of environment that we're placing our children in. You know, if we're not very upfront with them about why we need to do this, you know, maybe it was in the late 80s when it was, there was a massive drought and they were worried about your school building I think it was an old reality. school. <laughs> right. I think yeah. the reality is, is that when we are not really upfront with children and explain to them why yeah. we're doing things, I mean, kids are far more intuitive and a lot brighter than oh, I think totally. we get for. So um, it's just really important to be very concrete and upfront with kids. Yeah. Um, I want to talk a little bit about um, how someone can get involved with Ellie's Place and any advice you have for people who are just looking to volunteer um, just in general, in the past, when I've wanted to volunteer for someone, I just tend to send an email and ask. And sometimes I get a response. Sometimes, you know, I'm redirected elsewhere. Sometimes they say, sure, come on in. Um, so, you know, how do you, how do people get involved and um, how do you accept volunteers? So volunteers are the lifeblood of what we do. Yeah. We have four on-site facilities and we serve close to 150 children every week in some <gasps> of our facilities. Wow. And so we are also utilizing around 100 volunteers every week. Wow. So our volunteer process is a little bit more stringent. We require our volunteers to do um, 23 hours of training and um, make a year-long commitment to being a program facilitator. And that can be very daunting for people. Um, All of our sites are in... Um, college communities and so we do have a lot of college students that reach out to us and Mm -hmm. want to volunteer and they are kind of daunted by that commitment Um, we had a college student one time who came to volunteer for us and our volunteer coordinator said you know you're going to need to do this for a year and he said I'm a 19 year old guy like I don't know what I'm going to be doing next (laughs) week let alone a year from now he ended up volunteering for us for three years so you know I think Once people people get into the fold, they really get hooked. But we do also have volunteer opportunities for people who 
maybe don't want to be a year-long volunteer facilitator or would prefer to come and volunteer at one of our events or come into our office and stuff envelopes for us. And, and we have those opportunities all across the state. The way that we have found most effective in recruiting volunteers is one through social media, because we are able to get the word out about all of our volunteer opportunities to all of our sites. And then we have an interactive volunteer application that people can fill out when they come to our website. We get phone calls and we just direct folks back to our website to fill out that form. And then it allows us to be a little bit more organized and intentional about who's volunteering where, and then making sure that we don't miss anybody. Hmm. What, um, what advice do you have for people who are looking to get involved in this or any other community organization? I think that if you have an interest, and I've been in the nonprofit community for almost my entire career, which is a long time. Um, so if you haven't, I know that as someone who's been a nonprofit administrator, if you have an interest in doing something for a, for a nonprofit, if they are not responsive, it's probably because they need you more than they realize. <laughs> like they have so much on their plate. It's yeah. really hard to totally. um, negotiate and manage volunteers. But yeah. um, I would say be persistent. Um, the other thing that I think is really helpful for people in communities, and I'm, I'm not here to promote any specific organization, but service clubs are really a great way for people to get involved in their community and to provide both volunteer and financial support to nonprofits in their community. So things like Kiwanis or Rotary or Mm -hmm. um, Zanta, any sort of service organization in your community that allows you to, they sort of aggregate all the volunteer opportunities for you. and, And that makes it pretty easy to just sign up and go. But you know, most of the volunteer, most of the nonprofits I have worked for, and many of the nonprofits that I'm aware of, at least in our community um, and within our network, they're they're looking for volunteers for something. And sometimes it could be a pretty intense volunteer training, and you have to be screened, and you yeah. you know you have to go through background checks. And then sometimes it's just, you know, we don't have a receptionist. Can you come in one day a week and answer the phone? So exactly. there's a voice one day a week for our organization. Mm-hmm. So it's, you know, it's just a question of, I think, being persistent um, and being flexible, understanding that, yes, I absolutely love this, this women's shelter and I, this is where I want to volunteer, but maybe it's okay if they're not ready to take on me as a volunteer for me to start volunteering somewhere else for a bit, just to be able to share my time. Yeah. Um, can you talk a little bit, you, you sort of alluded to it, but how did you get involved doing this type of work? What was your background? Well, I started in the Girl Scouts. (laughs) I I remember that. No, I remember that. Yeah. Yeah. But, um, (laughs) you know, I was in Girl Girl Scouts from the time I was in first grade until I was in middle school. And, I think that and, you know, just my parents, my father has a servant's heart and has always been involved in volunteering and doing things for for organizations. And um, I will admit that I worked in politics for a very brief stint and decided very quickly that that was not for me. And Mm so, um, you know, knowing that nonprofits were providing support to people who really needed it across my community and across the state. 
that was really when I sought out working in this sector. And um, I got sucked in very quickly and started doing things like fundraising and training and event coordination. And those are the kind of jobs where people say, well, I could, I could never ask anyone for money or I don't know how to plan a party like that. So yeah. people that are willing to do that kind of work, they're, um, they're in pretty high demand. Yeah. So, um, you know, just my willingness to not be smart enough to say no ever has really allowed me to um, forward my career and, mm-hmm. um, you know, be pretty successful in helping people across the state of Michigan and, and nationally. I had the opportunity to work as a fundraiser for a large university, and that took me all over the country meeting with different alumni and donors, and that was very exciting. And I have had the opportunity to work for tiny little organizations right here in my hometown. So um, it's it's been a good ride. And um, it's certainly not anything, you know, when I was five, I said I was going to be a lawyer. So that's <laughs> not what I'm doing today. Um, but I think that this is a great way. This has ended up being a great way for me to mesh, you know, my personal passions with my professional knowledge. And it's it's been a great ride. So there's a real gem of advice in what you just said, which is you said you you didn't say no. You said yes to just. Yeah. I'm assuming there was some stuff you went. Oh, I really don't want it to, but I will anyway. But yeah, yeah, you said yes to as much as you possibly could, and I think that's a real gem of professional advice for people. Um, you know, it's funny. I have a post-it note on my computer monitor, and it says just say yes because. Yeah. That's sort of my mantra in my role currently and just in what I do. Um, I want to be able to help people get to where they want to be and figure out how to make that happen. So I, I prefer to say yes over no any day. Well, and Sometimes that gets me in trouble. <laughs> I know. I think I'm the same way. It, it is, it's, it's something that I think about a lot that you can't get so hung up in what you want to do that you don't see the possibilities and the stuff that maybe doesn't quite fit with you, but, you know, let's give it a try anyway. Um, Mm -hmm. And to be able to diverge off of different paths is really important. Um, Yeah, I think that's hugely important. And I think especially, you know, we have a great opportunity. People don't work somewhere for 30 years anymore. You know, that's very uncommon in this day and age. And so I think that that gives us as humans the chance to really, kind of spread our wings and do all the things that we want to do instead of really locking ourselves into to yeah. one career, one job, one place, you mm-hmm. know, working for the pension. Um, so that's, that's been, I think the most exciting part for me. It's always something new. The other sort of nice takeaway from that is that parents really do make a difference in what their kids end up becoming. I mean, look at what, what you do my parents were social workers, look at how I turned out. So, you know, there is that, that impact is there. And and I think it's good for people to be aware of that. That's also a shout out to our parents saying, yeah, absolutely. you know, hi, you guys are great. Thanks for everything. Yeah. Good work. Good work, guys. <laughs> Nicely done. Um, okay. A couple last questions. Um, the, one of the things I'm going to ask everybody and I think I emailed this to you, is I want to ask Mm -hmm. everyone who or what deserves to be voted most popular? Hmm. 
Well, I think the people that deserve to be voted most popular are the people that I work with and the people across this country who are working on the front line mm-hmm. with kids who have experienced trauma. So whether that is the death of someone close to them or being placed in a foster care situation or whatever trauma it is that these children have been experiencing. And, you know, obviously we're hearing a lot right now about kids who are being traumatized and it's horrible. Yeah. Um, and that is, that can affect the core and the, the complete makeup of who we are as a community and as a country. And so I really think that those individuals who are willing to put themselves out there, traumatize themselves because there's a ton of secondary trauma in doing that. Oh, totally. Yeah. Um, And just being willing to support those kids who need it when they need it. And to me, those people are not only most popular, they deserve all, all the awards. (laughs) So um, that's who I really have to give kudos to. It's funny that you would say that because I decided the the motivation for this episode, I'll probably talk about this in the intro, but the motivation from this episode came from watching Spider-Man, the new movie. And this, mm-hmm. this, they call him the friendly neighborhood Spider-Man. And I kept thinking, so, you know, superhero helps the neighborhood, superhero helps the community. Who are our real life superheroes? And that's what led mm-hmm. me to want to talk to you about this, because I think that's what you have going on. I think you guys have a lot of real life superheroes running around there. Thank you. Um, Yeah, I would agree. Yeah. Thank you so much for doing my podcast. Thank you for the work you do. Thank you for being born into the same family as me. (laughs) (laughs) Well, all of those things have been very fun. (laughs) And um, thank you so much. And I will talk to you soon. Sounds good. Thank you. Bye. Thank you so much for listening. You can find more episodes of Most Popular on iTunes and SoundCloud. More information, including additional resources for educators, can be found on my website, which is adriantrier-beanick.com. The website is listed in the episode notes in case you want to know how to spell it. And I am on Instagram at at dr.adriantb. That's at dr. period a-d-r-i-e-n-n-e-t-b. Thank you so much to my students for the encouragement to keep making these episodes. It means so much to me, and I will see you all next time.